Good morning, church. Today's reading is going to be chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you have sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a joy to be with you this morning. And I pray that through this time, God would give us a deep sense of fear for him and for his name. And I know that fear is a weird thing to seek. It's not something we normally want. But fear is exactly what God wants for us to receive from this passage. Um, We'll glance at verse 5 and verse 11. It said, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then in verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So that's what the application of this passage is. It's, it's stated twice. That's what the original community got from it. And that's what I think God wants us to get from it. So what is the kind of fear that we're supposed to have for God? It's not that we're supposed to be afraid of God, as if he's going to uh, necessarily strike us dead. We're not supposed to run away from him in terror, but we are supposed to have a reverential awe that takes God's authority seriously. And that's what Ananias and Sapphira lacked here. They thought that, that now because we are forgiven through the gospel and we're part of this church community, we can kind of do whatever we want and blur the lines. They didn't fear God and his authority. To understand fear a little better, I'm going to give you an illustration that has been really helpful for me for a number of years in understanding what fear of God is supposed to look like. Um, So this isn't one I made up, but it's one I find really helpful. 
Um, so for this, though, it's a little bit of, a, of an exercise, not just an illustration. I actually, you guys have a part to play. I want you to kind of close your eyes and try to imagine what I'm telling you as vividly as you can. So as vividly as your imagination can engage the story, go ahead, try to imagine it. Imagine you're walking home one day and you approach your familiar front entrance to your house. And as you're coming close to the door, you suddenly hear a little sound behind you. Meow. You turn around and you see there's a little kitten. He looks a little nervous. You've not seen him before, but you kind of lower down and you get down on his level and you expect him to run away, but actually he runs up towards you and closes the distance between you and then gives you a little kitty kiss on the nose. And then he turns around so that you can pet him. Okay, open your eyes. Pretty good experience, right? Kittens are adorable. If you don't think so, just imagine it was a dog. Okay, but now um, I'm going to retell the same story a second time, though. Um, so, so I'm going to have you close your eyes again. We're going to retell it, but I'm going to inject a little bit of fear into it this time. I want you to take note of how the story changes, um, how your feelings towards, towards the situation change as a little bit of fear is injected into the story. So imagine you're walking home one day, and you see your familiar front entryway. And then you hear a sound in the distance. It sounds like somebody yelling, but you can't make out the words. And then there's this ambient sound in the background, and you realize that it's a helicopter. And you look up, and you see it's, it's actually two, no, three helicopters flying, circling overhead. And then you notice that there are no cars on the street, and there are no other people, except that you see a couple police cruisers on either end of your street, and they have the lights on, but no sirens. You feel your phone buzz, and you pull it out, and you look down, and it's an emergency broadcast alert. Warning, lion on the loose in Orlando, take cover. You twirl around towards your door and you lower your phone and you're confronted not 10 feet in front of you between you and the door with a massive male lion. His back is tense and he's looking at you right in the eyes. You try to remember the survival books of what you're supposed to do. Do you stand still or do you run away? But before you can even decide on what to do, he closes the distance between you down to, to five feet, down to two feet. He comes right up on you. And before you can dodge, he gives you a massive lion kiss on the nose. And then he turns and he lays down beside you. You open your eyes. Which of those is the better experience? I mean, a kiss from a kitten is adorable and it, it may make your day, but a kiss from a lion is going to change your life. It's, it's go, you're going to remember and reflect on that day and tell the story of that day for the rest of your life. It's going to change you. And that is something approaching biblical holy fear that we're supposed to have for God. It's, it's a fear that, that takes him seriously and gives us awe in his presence. And that's, that's what Ananias and Sapphira lack. That's what God wants us to have. Brothers and sisters, we do not serve a kitten God. We, we don't serve a God who is nice or weak or man-centered. He's not a genie. He's not a mascot. 
We serve a God who is holy, holy, holy. He's an incendiary lioness fire. He, he is fierce after the glory of his own name. He cares more about his name and his pleasure than about yours. You are not at the center of his universe. He is at the center of yours. He made you for him, not the other way around. He is not a means to your ends. He refuses to be. It is about the glory of his name. You exist at his pleasure for his pleasure. And the pleasure that you have in existing is so that you can turn to him in gratitude and make much of him. God is glorious and great. The, the mountains stand tall for him. The valleys bow down to him. The oceans dance for him. The, the trees clap their hands for him. And the nations, though right now they rage and plot in vain, they will soon turn towards him and bow their knees before him. And all their glorious goods are gonna be brought in before him and he will reign over everything. And in reigning over them, they will thrive and they will flourish. God is the sun at the center of the universe. And if you remove him without him, everything descends into cold, dark chaos. God is a lioness God. The Bible uses, uh, in a number of places, it describes him as a lion so that we'll come into this kind of, of understanding. Uh, that he, he is fearsome. Ananias and Sapphira thought that they were serving a kitten God. So let's turn to the text and let's see how they used God for their benefit and took him lightly. We're gonna, we're gonna look at their sin first, understand what they did. Uh, we're gonna look in verses one through four. Um, in verses two, three, and four, we're gonna see that they were guilty of theft, lying, and hypocrisy, respectively. So first, Acts 5, one through two. It says, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. The, the Bible was written in the language Greek. Uh, the New Testament was written in Greek, not in English. And, and generally speaking, the English translation that we have, the English tra translations that we have, are so good and thorough and careful that there's hardly ever need to refer back to the Greek. But sometimes it is a little bit helpful. Sometimes you can get a nuance of a word that sheds a little bit of extra light. And I think this is one of those cases here. The word here that's translated that he kept back some of the money, um, it, the primary definition of that word is actually to steal. If you look it up, it'll be to steal or to hold back. Um, it, it wasn't just that he... Um, he withheld, but that he withheld in a way that was, was stealing or taking something that wasn't his. And to understand why that's the case, why this was an act of stealing, because it was his money to begin with, we have to look carefully at the money and at whose it is at each point of the story. Um, have you guys ever seen that, that shell game where you have to keep your eye on, there's like the little treasure that goes under one of the little bowls and they get all mixed up and you have to keep your eyes on it. Let's do that with the money real quick. See, see whose money it is and, and pay close attention to it. So initially, Ananias and Sapphira, they own the land. Whose land is it? Well, in one sense, it's actually a little complicated because in one sense, the land is God's. 
Even though Ananias and Sapphira own it, the Bible has this perspective where all of us are stewards. We're stewards of things that belong to God and are entrusted to us. God says this explicitly in the Old Testament when he says, the land is mine, it belongs to me. He says people can't even sell the land, they can only sell use of the land because the land belongs to him. And that's the perspective of the whole Bible is that all of our things, our possessions and our talents and our treasures, everything has been given to us. It says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast and brag as though you did not? The land belongs to God, but Ananias and Sapphira are entrusted with it as stewards. They'll have to give an account for it, for how they used it. But right now, for the time being, it's theirs to do with as they please. Then Ananias and Sapphira sell the land. So now whose land is it? Or the the money from the sale, rather. The money from the sale, again, is still God's. But Ananias and Sapphira are still entrusted with it as stewards. Now, the prophet off the land, they should, should give a tithe to God. And the Old Testament, when, when people would withhold a tithe, God says that is stealing. Um, he says that's like robbing his storehouses. And so, so there's this, this sense in which after they sell the land, they are entrusted with the money of stewards, but they have an obligation to pay a tithe to God um, as a symbol of the fact that all of it really is God's. All of the money is God's. Um, but, but the 90% they're entrusted with as stewards and it's still under their authority. Well, then Ananias and Sapphira pledge the proceeds of the sale to God, to his church. Um, it says in the next verse that, uh, that they lied to the Holy Spirit. So it seems to be the case that in prayer to God, they, they publicly, in front of other people too, because everyone knew about it, pledged the sale of the money, the whole of the sale to God. And so then whose money is it? Well, the money is still God's, just as it has been all along, but now Ananias and Sapphira are no longer entrusted with it as stewards. It's not under their authority. It's not their money. They've pledged the whole of the money to God. And so when they secretively and sneaky hold back some of the money, it's stealing. It's taking money that's not theirs. They're, they're embezzling from the church, money that, that has already left their authority. And so they are stealing from God. Go on to verse three and see that they also lied. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept back for for yourself some of the money that you received from the land? So we see that they lied to the Holy Spirit, which again is just taking God so lightly. Then verse four, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you do such a thing? You have lied not just to human beings, but to God. So in, in lying to human beings and to gods, Ananias and Sapphira were, were guilty of the sin of hypocrisy. They were pretending to be holier than they actually were. They were, they were pretending to give the full sum of the money when actually they held some back. And in in doing that, they show that they were fearing men, not God. They knew that God could see what they were doing, but their concern was men and and, and what the people around them saw and thought. So what did God do? How did God respond? God did a miracle. He killed them. 
he miraculously killed them. So how many of you would like to see God do a miracle today? Is that a trick question? Yes, it's a trick question. We, normally, we would just think, yes, absolutely, I want to see God do a miracle. Um, but miracles are actually dangerous things, as we're going to see here. Um, not just because they, they might involve untimely deaths, but, but even, even aside from that, miracles are, are dangerous things because we serve a lion God. Miracles aren't just parlor tricks. So first, we've we got to look at what a miracle is. We've got to take a minute to examine that. Um, a miracle is not just supernatural fireworks that are there to impress us. It's the first thing to understand. Uh, the most basic definition of a miracle is, is a, it's a supernatural act in which God uh, works counter to the ordinary laws and rules of nature that he has set up. Generally speaking, God works through the laws of nature to accomplish his will. Okay, God is king over everything and he causes what he wants to cause. He's, the, he's playing chess when we're playing checkers. He is doing and causing, uh, the, the Bible says, the nations rage and plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed one. God is working, but generally speaking, he works through the laws of nature. But sometimes, just as if to show that he can, he'll work counter to the laws of nature. Supernatural acts. He'll break the rules of physics and logic that he set up and ordained to begin with. And that is what we, we generally call a miracle. But a miracle is not just any old breaking of the laws of physics. Um, God uses miracles to accomplish specific purposes, and there's a pattern to them. If you look at the Bible, there's a pattern to the miracles that we see. We don't see Jesus just like supernaturally talking into the minds of people and saying, you should obey me. Um, we don't just see him shooting off fireworks. Um, there, there's, there's specific patterns that the miracles fall into. What is that? Well, every miracle in the Bible, I, I shouldn't say every miracle, almost every miracle in the Bible fits into this pattern where, where they look backwards and they look forwards. That's, what, that's the pattern. That's what miracles do. Miracles look back at the Garden of Eden and at the ideal for human flourishing that was lost. And miracles look forward to the new creation that's coming, to the restoration of all things that is promised in God's word. And they show us like a preview of what's coming. And, and so, I mean, think of the miracles in the Bible that we see. So we see um, blind people, who can see. We see deaf people who can hear. We see lame people healed so that they can get up and walk. We see food multiplied. We see water turned into wine. Um, we see storms stilled and people walking on water. How do all these things point backward and forward? Um, well, in the Garden of Eden, there was no sickness. There weren't deaf people. People were supposed to be able to see and hear and walk and in the new creation, there will be no sickness. Sickness will be removed from the story. And so we see miracles where Jesus will heal the sick. He'll give us a glimpse of what's coming, of what we lost and what is on its way back. Originally, there was not supposed to be famine. People weren't supposed to go hungry and starve. And in the new creation, there will be an eternal flourishing feast. It says in Psalm 67, then the land will yield its harvest and God will bless us. God our God will bless us, even the ends of the earth will fear him. It talks about the wedding supper of the lamb. There will be abundant food, rich wine, well refined, it says in Isaiah. And so we see miracles where Jesus multiplies food. He brings us a step closer. He previews what's coming. It's, it's like this idea of a peephole into true reality. 
where there's this, this veil over us and we live in this earth and we think this earth is normal. We think that this is what is everyday ordinary existence, but this is actually the aberration. And really miracles give us little poke holes so that we can see past the veil at the true reality that exists on the other side where there is human flourishing, where, where there's death is no more. That's what it, the, Jesus heals people who are dead. He causes them to come back to life because that's a preview of the resurrection of the dead. The death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the old things will pass away. So what is God previewing in this miracle? Ananias and Sapphira were not singled out for death because their sin was necessarily the worst sin that was like ever committed. You know, we don't see uh, a lot of examples of people just supernaturally, instantaneously dying like this. And it's not that their sin was necessarily like reached some new level, but rather that their sin, God dealt with it in a miraculous way to give us a sign, a warning, previewing true reality of where their sin was headed. And where our sin will be headed, it, like you might not supernaturally be singled out for a miraculous death if you commit the sin of hypocrisy, but you see in this warning where that sin is heading, what its destination is. Ananias and Sapphira's sin was not necessarily the most vile, but we should understand it was made more vile by the fact that they knew better. So we do have to see that their sin was actually quite serious, even more so than, than if, if one of us did some of the same things. And here's why. Ananias and Sapphira, they were part of the early Christian community in Jerusalem. So they most likely had seen Jesus in person, had probably seen him physically preach. Um, there were about 5,000 Christians in, this, in the Christian community at this time, and 500 are said to have seen Jesus risen at one time. So there's at least a one in 10 chance that they saw the risen Jesus. And, and certainly, even if they hadn't, they saw and knew and walked with and were friends with people who had seen the resurrected Jesus. They, they knew better. They, they probably had spoken in languages they didn't know. As the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts 2 and people started to, to speak in tongues in languages they didn't know to tell the gospel to, to the, the foreigners who were coming through Jerusalem at that time, Ananias and Sapphira were there in that. They probably had spoken in other languages and certainly had known people who had. They'd seen these miracles where people in the early Acts community were raised from the dead, were healed. They were around all this on a regular basis. And so they had no excuse. They knew better in a, in a way that, that we haven't experienced. Um, and, and we see this, that Jesus gives a warning um, to people who know better. And, and this is, goes back to why miracles are so dangerous. You think miracles are a good thing. You think you want to see a miracle. There's whole Christian movements built around seeing miracles right now. But check out this warning of Jesus in Matthew 21, 21 through 24. He says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Chorazin was an early Jewish city. He said, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, two pagan cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, 
Will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. It would have repented. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, you guys are more guilty. You're extra guilty because you know better. You saw proof that I am king, that I, that I am God, that I rule over the universe and you still are in rebellion and you're just worse off for it. Miracles are only a blessing for those who are moved by them. If miracles cause you to repent and to follow God, they are a blessing for you. But if not, they're a curse because they just increase your guilt. And it's not just miracles. It's any evidence we see of God's reality and of his working, it increases our level of accountability. Ananias and Sapphira knew better, so their sin was very grave, but still death is an atypical miracle. It was a demonstration to the community. It was an act of love of God for the whole Christian community at that time to show them sin is serious. Do not trifle with it. It says in, in, in Revelation 21.8, we see the reality that this miracle was a preview of. Revelation 21.8 says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice the magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. That's the reality. The, 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 the miracle looking forward and back, this is what it's looking forward to, is this reality where sin leads to death. I didn't plan on this, but just as an, an aside to clarify, anytime the Bible talks about categories of people and it, it doesn't just say those who lie, but it says liars or the sexually immoral, anytime it, it states sin as an identity, it's referring to people who are deliberately in that sin. Not, not people who like, struggle and sometimes like will tell a lie and then that doesn't mean you're going to the lake of burning sulfur, but it's people who, who, who just go headlong into that sin, who aren't repentant, who don't turn away from it, but who live in it, who are okay with it, who, who protect that sin. If you choose these sins over God, that's the destination, the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and that's the preview that we're given here. And some may object, if God is so fearsome, why love him? If he's so fearful, why, why choose him? Why follow him? So I just need to address this real quick. I need to show you, as an aside, that wrath and love always go together and imply one another. There is no love that has no wrath to accompany it, and there is no wrath without love. So, so let, me, let me give you this illustration. Imagine that there is a child who I see suffering, um, maybe getting picked on, maybe even abused. My internal sense of wrath is going to directly depend on how much I love that child. Okay, so if I am a sociopath who has no human empathy, I may, out of a sense of duty or because I'm seeking a reward, I might intervene, but I have no internal sense of wrath because I have no love for the child. If I'm just an ordinary human with empathy and I'm a stranger to the child though, I'll have some level of wrath. I'll, I'll, I'll be furious. I'll be, this should not be happening. I'll intervene and I'll have some level of wrath. But if I, if I know the child, if it's a niece or a nephew, I will be outraged. And if it's my child, you better watch out. 
Because my love for the child is exactly why I have wrath. And imagine God's love, his infinite overflowing love for human beings and that he watches and knows the, the pain that sin causes. That, that when women are, are in, in slave trade, uh, when, when people are suffering and dying, he empathizes with and loves them in those moments of fear in, in a way that we can never even relate to. He loves them so perfectly, then of course he's going to overflow with wrath towards sin. He loves everything that is his in a way that we could not even relate to. His love is so far beyond ours. And so of course he has great wrath towards sin. It's precisely because of his love. His wrath is not a reason not to love him. It's a reason to, to, to seek to be in his family and an object of his love. So we see the, the two lessons that we see in this, in this miracle of the judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, the first that we've talked about, sin leads to death. The second one we still need to talk about is that God hates lukewarmness. That's what we see here. God, he despises lukewarmness. He, you would think that if God were going to single out one act of sin for this supernatural judgment, I mean, this was like a one-off event um, in, in, in the early church. You would think that he would have chosen like the worst sin, like probably like a murderer or uh, you know, maybe somebody who committed adultery, maybe an idolater, maybe somebody who betrayed their family over to persecution. But no, God chose as the miracle, like he chose the sin of lukewarmness. He chose hypocrisy. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira, they were giving a substantial sum of money to the church. It's not, it's not like they were in this vile rebellion. They were lukewarm. They were, they were being hypocritical about it. They were fearing men over God. And God chose this sin of lukewarmness to make this demonstration. God hates lukewarmness. See, Revelation 3.16, Jesus warns some of the churches in Revelation and he says to the church of Laodicea, he says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. He warns another church. He says, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Which means I will destroy your church. In that context, removing the lampstand meant removing the church. Jesus hates lukewarmness. C.S. Lewis said it well. He said, Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance. And if false, it's of no importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. God is not your genie. He's not there to give you your wishes. He's not there to make your life better. God refuses to be moderately important. Christianity is not fire insurance for hell. It's not, it's not a way for you to take a little bit of your time and money and just hedge your bets in case hell is real. Hell is not a place for people who fear God or who fear hell. Hell is a place for, for people who don't love God. Christianity is not here to, to make your life fulfilled. You exist for God's pleasure. He, he is king. He is infinitely important. He is all that matters. 
The, the, the Bible says he is glorious. That's what glory is. Glory is weight, substance, inertia, mass. It, the, the glory means that he is what matters. That, that he takes up the full picture. The sin of lukewarmness is one of the vilest of sins because the sin of lukewarmness is one of the only sins about which the sinner cannot say, I didn't know, I didn't know better. The sin of lukewarmness is a sin that says, God, I believe what you've said is true, but meh. It doesn't matter, I don't care. The sin of lukewarmness, it acknowledges the truth, but then still is unmoved by it. The Pharisees, they, they were famously lukewarm. They, they believed the law, they believed in God, but they were not moved by it in an internal way. And Jesus, in confronting the Pharisees in John 9, he says, for judgment I came into the world so that the blind will see and that those who, are, uh, who see will become blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard that and they said, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin if you didn't know any better. But now because you claim to see, your guilt remains. It's precisely because they knew the law that they were guilty of breaking it. Jesus says, essentially, you're the worst off of everyone in your lukewarmness because you know better. Jesus told this same thing in a parable in Luke 12. He said, the servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know the master's will and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone to whom much has been given, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Lukewarmness is the worst case scenario. It's culpable apathy. Because you know the reality that that the lost sinners don't know and you're unmoved by it. The lukewarm man sits in church week after week after week after week and hears God's law and just goes and continually breaks it. Thinking somehow that he's better off for for knowingly violating the rules than he would be if he just stayed home. God refuses to be moderately important. You accomplish nothing by trifling with his glory. Romans 132 says, although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. So what's the application of all of this to us? Follow God or don't. But make up your mind. Don't be lukewarm. Don't follow him halfway. No hedging your bets. No no cosmic fire insurance. Follow God because he's worthy to be followed. Or or reject him, but, but don't come week after week and be unmoved. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they thought, okay, a little bit for God, a little bit for us. A little bit of God, a little bit a little bit of me. A little bit of glory for him, a little bit of glory for me. But God would not be trifled with. He refused to be their genie or their mascot. 
And his destructive judgment of their sacrifice shows his utter rejection for, for that, that vein of sacrifice. He, he absolutely refused to receive just a portion of their affection. He refused their hypocrisy, that, that a sacrifice like, like the sacrifice of Cain. He rejected it because it wasn't real. They didn't make him number one. They were, they were serving men. They were serving themselves and giving a little bit to God along the way. Brothers and sisters, God is a mighty warrior. He's reigning in splendor. He's a ferocious, sacrificing Savior King, and he's worthy of everything that you have to give him. If you saw a glimpse of God's back tucked in among the rocks, your face would glow for weeks. And if you saw God's face without something to protect or shield you, you would melt before him. God is glorious. He is infinitely powerful. When, when, if you heard God's voice, the rocks around you would rattle and shake. And in Revelation, it talks about the mountains melting away before him like wax. If you sang God's praise, you would be joining in with a song with mighty, fearsome angels and, and galaxies that have been spinning and singing his praise since before you were imagined. God is, is glorious and good. And if you became his child, you would reign with him for eternity. Jesus says, those who overcome, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. So what should you do? God will not allow you to trifle with his glory. He, he will either be your king or he will be your judge. So run to him or run from him, but do not stand in his presence and make light of him. Brothers and sisters, come and lay down your, your money, lay down your lives, lay down your pretenses, lay down your excuses, lay down your hypocrisy, and help me lay down mine. Because Jesus is worthy of all of our lives, 100%. Let's enter his kingdom. Let's enter his family. Let's enter into this reality, 100%. No looking back, no excuses, no halfway. God is not moderately important. He's everything. He's worth everything. He's the pearl of great price. He's worth selling everything for. If you have him, you have everything. And if you lack him, you have nothing. All of your, your money and your gains and your 401k and everything you're working your life off for, it's all monopoly money in the 11th hour of a game that's about to end. And unless you convert it into true treasure, it's not gonna matter. All that matters is this, is knowing God and, and being found in Him. And Paul says, I, I'll consider it all lost compared to the surpassing goodness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not with a righteousness in myself, but one that's found in him. God is the rock of ages. He's the unshakable foundation. So come hide yourself in him. Come be found in him, clothed in a righteousness that's not from yourself, that's not from your best efforts. All that, all, all that you need to do, just lay down your sin and choose him instead. 
You don't have to have a perfect walk. You don't have to be perfect all the time. You just have to choose him over your sin. You just have to choose him and say, God, no, I want you. So if you are weary, then come. If you are apathetic, then come. Lay that down. If you are living a double life, then come. If you are hoarding possessions, then come. If you're a liar, then come. To the Ananias and the Sapphira among us and in each of us, come. Come to God. God will receive all who come to him and nothing else matters but that. Nothing else matters more than that. Nothing is more urgent than that you would come and lay down your life and all your sin and choose him instead. For Jesus' sake, amen.